let me just open us in prayer as we, as we open the word together and as we dive into our sermon today. Lord, thank you so much for this series that we've been in. Uh, I, I hope that it's been uh, helpful. I hope it's been helpful. I know for me delivering it, there's, it's just been challenging because this is such a real issue, God. But I, I want to be a church that talks about real issues because we live, we live in real life, Lord, and you want to walk with us through our real lives. And I'm so thankful for that. So I just pray you'd be with us uh, one more time as we look at really what I think is the solution to our own sexual brokenness, Lord. And, and so today, uh, please just quiet our hearts, even in this moment, that we would be open to hearing from you and even hearing, God, your love for us, your longing for us, and how you want to give us uh, what we really will never find in a romantic relationship, um, and, and just lead us and guide us towards your love, to fill us up to be whole so that we can give that love to the world. Thank you, Lord. Uh, be with us now. Amen. All right, so like uh, other weeks of this series, we normally take breaks to talk and discuss. We won't be doing that today. Uh, we'll get back into that rhythm again uh, next week. But when we started this series in week one, we talked about how we are all sexually broken, and Jesus wants to meet you in your sexual brokenness. So check that sermon out if you, if you missed it. But we all have hurt, we all have longings, we all have wounds. They manifest in different ways. We deal with them differently. Everybody's story is different. But if we were really, really honest and vulnerable, we would find that we all have that in common. Uh, typically, the church's response to uh, sex, to sexual brokenness, to sexual temptation uh, is marriage. And, and so the church just says, yo, just get married and all your problems will be solved. And there's a whole bunch of problems with that. There's a whole bunch of problems with that. Uh, one, you know, if you're single, you're like, uh, thanks, can't just go get married. Like, that's not really how that works. Uh, if you're a teen, if, if you're a youth, you're like, I'm 15. I'm not going to go get married. Thanks for the, thanks for the tip, though. Uh, we, we, we did a, series, a sermon two weeks ago on LGBTQ+. And if you, for, for many within the LGBTQ community, you're like, I'm, I'm not going to, for Christians, they're like, I'm, I, I'm not going to get married. There's a few that, that are in what's called mixed orientation marriages that are able to do that. Most can't. Most, most uh, aren't, aren't going to be getting married to somebody that's, uh, you know, of the opposite sex. Uh, and then let's be real. Those of us that are married, uh, to some degree or another, we have struggles in our marriages. There, there's people that are already struggling in marriage. And if the church says marriage is the solution, married folks are like, no, no, marriage is the problem. <laughs> my marriage is my main problem. Um, you know, and the church just kept saying the same line over and over, sex within marriage, sex within marriage. You're like, yeah, that's where my problem is. Uh, so you need to give me a different solution. Marriage is not the solution. Marriage often in the church is presented like an idol. And what I mean by an idol is marriage is propped up to be like a substitute for true intimacy. So there's a true intimacy that you can only find in Jesus. And it's an intimacy that no human being can give you. So just really think about that because everything in our culture tells you that some romantic relationship, some guy or girl is going to give you the intimacy that you're looking for, that your heart is longing for. Only Jesus can give you that. And anything that's a substitute for Jesus is an idol, okay? So that's what I mean by that. Now, I also want to say marriage is good. Marriage is God's design for sex. We talked about that in week two, but it is not our savior. It's not our savior and it's not the savior and it's not the solution 
to our sexual brokenness. Uh, in, in Mark 5, we looked at the woman uh, who had bleeding, who had hemorrhaging for 12 years, and she went to Jesus. She had her a, a, very, a very physical type of sexual brokenness. She found love in Jesus, and she found healing in Jesus, but also through him, she found community. And we want to talk about that a bit today, finding love and healing in Jesus and finding community in Jesus. So I've been married, uh, let's see, this June 19th will be my 19th wedding anniversary. So I guess, do we get, you get a golden anniversary? Does it work that way? This will be ours. So I'll take all the applause I can get. And so will Jen. Um, you know, 19 years has been great. It's gone by fast, but we've had incredible challenges in our marriage. We've had incredible challenges in our marriage. And it's by the grace of God that we still love each other and that we're still, that we're still married. Uh, there's an analogy that, that I've, I've tried to think of when it comes to our, our expectations for marriage. Uh, if, if, so um, if, I, if I go into my, my marriage thinking that it will be a certain thing, and it's not that thing, then I get really disappointed. Okay, so uh, I, I don't have a ton of major health problems. I'd say probably my biggest complaint is I have tendonitis in my knees. Okay, so I've had three ACL surgeries. Because of that, I get tendonitis in my patella tendon. So I just have to be careful with sports I play. I, I did the trampoline park with my children a few weeks ago as a 40-year-old. And uh, that's probably not the best life choice in the world. I did at one moment think that I retore my ACL because my knee like buckled. I was probably good to stay away from the wall trampolines when you're over 40, uh, but was doing that. And I was like, wow, that did not feel like a natural bend of my knee. Uh, thankfully, I'm okay. Uh, but I'm going to tell you, my knees were really sore for days and I was definitely icing. Okay. So, um, that's my biggest health, health complaint. Uh, if I were to go into, um, I wanted to have coffee up here. My coffee's over here. I'm, I'm drinking tea and water because I'm trying to not cough all over the place. But this is my coffee. Um, okay, if I were, if someone sold me coffee and they told me this coffee will cure your knee tendonitis, and they really had a good sales pitch. And I was like, that would be great. I would love to have no more knee tendonitis because I wouldn't have to wear bands on my knees. I wouldn't have to ice my knees. They slow me down. I'd be a faster runner. I could jump higher. I could do all these things. So I'm going to buy your coffee and I'm going to drink it. And then my knee tendonitis will be cured. What's going to happen? Nothing is going to happen to my knees. My knee tendonitis will not be cured. But, but bigger than that, I'm going to become angry. I'm going to become angry at coffee. I'm going to become resentful at coffee. And I'm going to say, this stinking coffee was supposed to cure my knee tendonitis, and it didn't. I hate coffee, and I hate the person that gave it to me because they lied to me. I know it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a bad metaphor. It's a cheesy metaphor, but hopefully you can, you can follow where I'm going with this. Uh, in, instead, if I was able to just be given coffee, and maybe you don't like coffee, I don't know. I do. Uh, but if I'm just able to be given coffee and I don't have an expectation that it's going to cure me of anything, uh, it's not going to cure cancer. It's not going to cure knee tendonitis. It's just a nice cup of coffee. It smells good. It has a nice aroma. Maybe you like to flavor yours. And you can just what? You can just enjoy it. 
and it can just be coffee and you can be thankful for it, then you're able, to, you're able to enjoy it. You're able to enjoy it. Okay, so this is how we approach marriage often. We go into our marriages and we think that this marriage is going to cure our ailments. And the church tells you that. You're, you're single, you know, you have these longings. Get married, it'll solve all your longings. We go into it as if it will cure us. And then when it doesn't, we get angry and resentful at our spouse that didn't solve all of our problems for us, in fact, just created new problems, and we get angry at God. We get resentful at God and say, hey, you told me that this was going to be this, this amazing thing, and it, it's not doing what you said it would do. So our expectations going into marriage and what marriage even is make a huge difference versus if we can just enjoy marriage for what it is, the cup of coffee, we can really like marriage and still have our other issues in life that need to get fixed in other ways and in other places. Okay, so three years into my marriage, I've been married 19 years now, um, three years into my marriage, and, and this is not the first time I've shared this publicly. Uh, I, I've, ri- I've written about this, and, and, and my wife you know, fully knows that I share this. We were struggling in our marriage. Uh, I wanted a divorce, she wanted a divorce, and I was at this point, I got married really young. I was 21 when we got married, and so when I was 24, we were living in Lansing, East Lansing area, around Michigan State University, and it was a very sexually charged environment. And that was, a kind of, that was new for me. My wife and I were both virgins when we got married. We had, we had done things God's way, and I went to Cornerstone here in town, uh, and most of my friends were committed to the same things, and people weren't sleeping around all over the place. And now I'm in, I'm in this college town, and I'm pastoring, by the way. I started a church, and I'm following Jesus, but we had struggles in our marriage. The, the, the coffee wasn't curing the knee tendonitis, okay? So, so I've, I've got my resentments, and I'm, and I'm pretty selfish. I'm pretty entitled in the way that I approached marriage. I didn't really approach it in a loving way. I approached it in the way the church sort of taught me was, hey, 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 male, hey, you know, man, go ahead and get married, and that's the place for you to have sex. And you, you, you get taught these things, not being taught what love is. You get taught as if marriage is meant to to serve you, right? And that's not, that's not what marriage or love is. So, so we had our issues, and I was the cause of a lot of it. And so then I'm, I'm looking around uh, this, this college town. It's very sexually charged. And I'm, I'm going, I think, I think my friends in high school had it right. My non-Christian friends, you know, public high school, I think they had it right. The sleeping around thing, that seems easier. That seems better than this. And it was a process. I didn't, I didn't want that. I'm struggling with God. I'm praying. I'm like, God, take these desires away. Um, but I started struggling with pornography again. I shared some of that story, I think, in the first sermon. But I'm married. I'm a pastor. I'm struggling with pornography again. I'm really tempted to leave my marriage. And in leaving my marriage, I mean, I was just going to cash it all in. I was, I was just going to cash in my faith, pretty much like going to go live a prodigal son life for a while. And my God, maybe I'll come back to you later. But this just isn't working. The desires were really, really strong, and I'm still trying to walk with God. I'm like, God, I'm, I'm angry at you. Why isn't this working? Uh, why do I feel the way I feel? Why do I have these desires that I have for other women, for women in general, these, uh, for pornography? What is my desire beneath the desire? And I, ask, I want you to ask yourself that question. What is your desire beneath the desire? I'm not saying your story is my story, and, and we're all going to have different stories. Men and women, we're going to have different stories. Uh, but what is your desire beneath your desire when it comes to your own sexual brokenness? And I ask that with God. What's my desire beneath my desire? And for me, what God revealed to me is I had this deep longing for acceptance, 
for validation and for approval. And you might use different words. I think there's lots of synonyms we could use. But I think we're all somewhat in the same boat when it comes to asking what is our desire beneath the desire. So for me, sex and, and women and pornography was sort of like a, like a simulation of the real thing. As if this attractive person finds me desirable, then I am desirable. So I need to be desirable by somebody because I have this void inside of me. And so if this other person finds me desirable, then I am desirable. And that's ultimately what I need. I need that hole inside of me to be filled. And so I started to do some, some deeper dive with God on the desire beneath the desire, this thirst I have for validation, for approval, for acceptance. And I started looking at our culture. I started looking at my, my childhood. I started looking at the, the, the world that I grew up in. And if you look at our culture, we really are a perform or you are nothing sort of culture. I, I believe, you know, in America, that's as American as apple pie is, as baseball is. You're, this is a performance-based culture. Uh, you could have had the best childhood in the world at, at home, or you could have a really rough childhood at home. You could have had parents that really played into this idea that you, you don't have value, you don't have worth. You might have had great parents, but either way, we grew up in this environment where some of you experienced uh, a childhood where you were the little league all-star. You could hit the curveball, you could hit the home run, and that gave you value. Others experienced being picked last in gym class, and nobody wanted you on their team because you weren't any good, and you, because you weren't any good, you weren't any good. You, you literally internalized the message, I'm not any good because I can't kick a kickball in gym class. Um, the, what our peers think of us has a huge factor on the, the level of value that, that we feel like we have. Uh, for some, it was grades in school. How about this? Take an exam. If you get an A, you're good. If you get a D, you're bad, right? This, the merit-based approach we take to grades, and certainly the way your parents treated you after you got certain grades, or the way your parents treated you after you did or didn't perform in sports. For me, there was a longing for acceptance in the popular crowd at school, and, and for this, this just longing, if they would accept me, if they would say that I'm valuable, then I would be valuable. And again, we could go through long threads of our family of origin, and I would invite you to find a really good counselor that you can sit down with that can talk to you about how you were raised and, and how your parents were raised even, and the, these, these family sort of um, ways of being raised and where some of these longings may have come from in your life. But my point is, for all of us, there's these voices of rejection from our past, these voices that have rejected us, that have said, you're not good enough, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And so I'm wrestling with these voices of rejection before God. And I know I've used this analogy before, um, but it, it, certainly, it certainly relates here. Uh, we're we're going to look at God's voice versus these voices of rejection. Um, and as we look at these, these, these voices of rejection versus God's voice, it really boils down to authority, okay? It boils down to authority. When you look at this picture, what's different about the two types of money up on the screen? It's pretty obvious, right? One of them is monopoly money. One of them is real money. But if you really look at those two monies, there's a lot of similarities. They're both made of paper. 
They both have a number attached to them. The difference is the, where they get their authority from, okay? Uh, the Monopoly money gets its authority from Parker Brothers. It gets its authority from the people you're sitting around the table with. You've all agreed around the table, four of you playing Monopoly, that this money means something in this game. And it's really the only currency that means anything in that game. The real money, it has an authority from the United States government. If you were to go to another country with that money, maybe they would take it. But you could go to a lot of places where they wouldn't take it because the authority of that piece of paper of that government doesn't reign there. And, you know, you, my, my kids are, are really into these, these world-building video games right now, and, which is great. I'm, you know, lots of adults are into them as well. Animal Crossing, Minecraft, Roblox, and each of these worlds that you create in a video game it has its own money in, in it. It has its own currency in it. And that currency has authority within the game, but if you were to go to Walgreens and try to purchase you know, your bag of Doritos with Roblox uh, dollars or... Uh, I think they're called Robux, my daughter told me, uh, or Monopoly money, they would turn you away because that money doesn't have authority there. So we're going to, in a moment here, we're going to look at God's voice versus these voices of rejection. And I want to I start by saying God's assessment of you is the only one that counts, okay? God's assessment of you is the only one that counts. So, but in our culture what we've done is we've created like a whole world of monopoly. And there's people just loaded with monopoly money in this sort of artificial world of value and where you get your value from. Could be sex, it could be power, it could be your promotion at work, it could be your status. We have all of these, these artificial ways of saying, I have value, I have value, I have value. And if you're playing Monopoly, that's cool. You might own Boardwalk and Park Place and have hotels and houses on them and you might just be doing great. But that is not the authority of real life. That is not going to cash out in reality. So what, what I'm proposing here is that the world we live in is the monopoly world. And that God's assessment of you is the ultimate authority of what matters. He is actual cash. He is the currency that actually has value behind it. But what, what's interesting is, You'll see people that are loaded with monopoly money, but inside they're bankrupt. They're bankrupt inside. And I would say there's even a correlation between the two. Because if you've been told you're worthless, you're worthless, you're worthless, you're worthless, and you believe that, I think you have no choice but to go try to fill up that worth in other ways. I need to fill up this worth. I need to fill up this worth. I need to fill up this worth. So Jesus, he had to decide. He had a decision to make. We're going to look in Scripture at Matthew 3 and Matthew 4. And Jesus had to make this really distinct, explicit decision between listening to the voice of his father or the voice of Satan. Now, I've written instead of Satan, the accuser, the, the slanderer. It's really interesting if you, if you do a search into where the, the word Satan came from. It was a Hebrew word that means the accuser. So it, it never originated as a proper name. It's not a name. It's not a capital S, Satan. Satan just means the accuser, and that was the name in the Old Testament, the accuser. And then in the Greek, they started using the word diablos, which you might know as devil in the translation, and that simply means slanderer. So eventually that became this proper noun name for Satan. But Satan 
is the accuser. He is the slanderer. And so in the text we're going to look at, he's accusing Jesus. He's slandering Jesus. What is slander? It's saying something about somebody that isn't true. Somebody's true self is here, and a slanderer comes and says something false about somebody that isn't actually true. So Jesus has to decide. Is he going to listen to the voice of his father or the voice of the accuser the slanderer. Now, here's some, uh, some verses I picked out of Matthew 4. This is in your devotional for this week. I would highly encourage you to check out the daily devotions for this week. Um, I think they're, they're exceptional this week. And I think this is a really, really important lesson that we all need, uh, whether, whether it's sexual brokenness or any other type of brokenness. Um, this, is, this is huge. So um, we're not going to go through the whole text today in Matthew 4. But in Matthew 4... Uh, Satan is tempting Jesus. He's in the wilderness. Jesus has, temp- has, has fasted for 40 days. And these are the three temptations that Satan, the accuser, the slanderer, gives to Jesus. Check it out. He says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Again, you can read the context. He's saying, throw yourself down off the temple and your angels will catch you. Do these spectacular feats if you're the son of God. Verse 9, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Now look at these three temptations and see, I won't ask you out loud, but just see if you can find a trend with these three temptations. Can you see a trend here? The trend that I see is Satan is tempting Jesus to acquire what he already has, okay? He's tempting him to acquire what he already has. It would be like if I went up to Craig and I was like, Craig, I will give you that watch if you get an A on your final exams. And Craig would be like, uh, I already have this watch. <laughs> this is my watch, um, Kyle, I will give you those shoes. I will give you those shoes if you get 100 on your performance report at work, your evaluation. I'll give you those shoes. They'll be yours. Satan is going up to Jesus, and he's naming things Jesus already has, and he's saying, I will give you those things if you fill in the blank. Now, what's interesting about the first two, the first two temptations, is these were what I call validate yourself temptations. Validate yourself temptations. Satan says, if you are the Son of God. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes, he is. Satan is going up to Jesus and saying, I want you to question your identity, prove that you are the Son of God. Essentially, he was saying, you are a poor carpenter. At this point in Jesus' ministry, he hadn't done any miracles yet. You are a poor carpenter from nowhere. Have you ever felt like a poor carpenter from nowhere? You're a poor carpenter from nowhere. You have no merit within society. Within the movers and shakers of society, you are on the bottom rung. When it comes to monopoly, you've mortgaged all your properties. You do not own any houses and hotels. You need to do something to prove yourself. You are not Messiah material. You need to perform. 
And of course, the third temptation, Jesus already had all the kingdoms and everything in the world because he created them. And here Satan is tempting him with something that he already has. And yes, I'm going somewhere for you and your life and me and my life. Satan does the same thing with us where he tempts us to give us something that we already have in Jesus. We just need to figure out how to find it. We need to figure out how to mine it and how to dive into it. And here's how Jesus found it. If you have your Bible open, you'll see that Matthew 4, right before Matthew 4 is Matthew 3. And in the original text, there were no chapter numbers and verse numbers. So verse 3 was meant to flow, sorry, chapter 3 was meant to flow right into chapter 4. And here's what happened right before Jesus went into the wilderness. Right before Jesus, uh, Satan started tempting Jesus in all these ways, here is what Jesus experienced. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew who he was. When Satan was coming to him and saying, prove who you are, perform to make yourself who you are, Jesus already knew who he was. The father had just told him, you're my son whom I love, in you I am well pleased. When he went into the wilderness and was tempted by Satan, ironically, he'd fasted for 40 days, but spiritually his stomach was full. His stomach was full. What happens when you go grocery shopping on an empty stomach? What happens? Mario's laughing back there. You buy everything. If you talk to your trainers, your trainers will tell you, don't do that. Don't go grocery shopping on an empty stomach because you buy everything. You go into the store with your list. I'm just here to get milk and eggs and some vegetables. But the first thing you see is donuts and Oreos and pop. And it all looks good. And you're starting to eat it before. Who's, who's eaten something before you got to the checkout? Come on. Confession time. Okay. See? See? Holy Spirit's moving here. We're going to have prayer time later. You guys can come forward. You're like, can you scan this wrapper of this thing that I ate before I got to the checkout? When you're hungry, everything looks good. And that's why it's such easy pickings for Satan in our culture today, because our whole culture has left Jesus behind. Our whole culture said, we don't need Jesus. We're not filled up on his love for us anymore. So we have a very empty culture, and sex makes a really easy, simple, cheap substitute for true intimacy. The true intimacy that Jesus has with us, for us, the love he has for us, um, only he can give us and fill us. And so sex, pornography, fantasy, all of these things, they make a really cheap uh, substitute for what Jesus has to offer us. I like to think of it like when you have Thanksgiving feast and you've eaten the turkey and you've eaten the apple pie and you've eaten the stuffing and you've eaten all of these things, you're really, really full and there does come a point when you don't want any more food, right? There does come a point when you sit down on the couch, you watch the lions, they lose again. They lose on Thanksgiving every year, Kyle, okay? That joke doesn't really get old because it never really changes, Pray for the lions this year. If a commercial comes on the TV for food, you, you, the Burger King commercial comes on, you're not rushing out to Burger King after you just had a huge Thanksgiving feast. This is Jesus feasting on the Father's love. So when Satan comes to him and offers him 
fast food and junk food. He's like, dude, I am good. I already know who I am. I'm already filled with the Father's love. And it's the same for us as we head into our individual unique temptations. We have to decide, are we gonna listen to the voice of our Father about who we are, or are we gonna listen to the voice of the accuser, the slanderer? And these would be the messages that you are not good enough. And again, that you are not good enough creates a natural allure that I need to find something to show that I am good enough. I am good enough, and I'm going to prove it. I'm going to prove it to myself, and I'm going to prove it to everybody else. And so again, enter into the lie that sex or romance or fantasy or pornography or marriage will prove that you're good enough and make you full or at least give you the feeling that you're full, even if the feeling doesn't last. All right, so I have Romans 8, 14 to 17 up on the screen, and this is in your devotional for the week as well. And I love Romans 8 in this section particularly because there's so many identifiers in here about what our identity truly is in Jesus. It says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We saw the Father speak to Jesus and say, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. I want to tell you today that God the Father says the same thing to you if you are a follower of Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, the beauty of the gospel is that the same pure, unconditional love that Jesus receives from the Father is true of you. One of the ways I know it is in Romans 8. It says right here at the end, it says, we are co-heirs with Christ. Co-heir means I receive what Christ receives. Jesus receives this pure, perfect love from the Father. Now I receive this pure, perfect love of the Father. This love that says, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are my child. Whom I love, with you I am well pleased. I always highlight this word fear in this text because for me I look at the word fear and I say, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid of not measuring up. Are you afraid of not measuring up? As you do the deep dive with God on your sexual brokenness, is there a fear there of not measuring up, of not being good enough, and sex makes a pacifier or some kind of medicine? It doesn't have to be sex. It can be your perfect marriage that you have in mind. It can be the perfect romantic relationship that you have in mind in your head, that this is the thing that will make you finally measure up. And meanwhile, God says to you, you are my child. You already are my child. You're looking for something that you already have. I'm already well pleased with you. You already measure up. I already love you. And I know this is a lot. I hope, I hope you're able to pick some of this up and this week spend time in these scriptures. But I want to give you a few more of these voices of the Father that tell you who you already are before we go out into the world and, 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 and they're drawn in by these temptations. All right, Hebrews 2, 11 says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. 
So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Jesus makes you holy and then calls you his brother and sister. You've been made holy in Jesus if your faith is in Jesus. Holiness, we'll look at the next, the next verse, Colossians 1.22. This it tells you what holiness is. It says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. When God looks at you, he does not see your imperfections. He doesn't see your sin. That's the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, when we talk about the good news, we're talking about God looking at you and seeing the perfection of Jesus, seeing the wholeness of Jesus, and that it's Jesus who makes you like Jesus. So for me, as I did the deep dive three years into my marriage and said, God, what's the desire beneath my desire? And the desire was to feel validated, to be approved, uh, to be accepted. This is what God showed me. He said, I already accept you. You'll never find this in marriage. You'll never find this in another human being. You can only find it in me. And I have it for you. And I have it for you in abundance. Numbers 6, 24 to uh, 26 in the Old Testament. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. This is another image for you of God and his love for you, his face for you. When you think of God, is this the face that you see? Is this the face you see looking back at you? Because this is the biblical face of God. And what often we do is we take those voices of rejection from our past, the voices of the accuser and of the slanderer and those that have rejected us, and we put those faces onto God's face and we say, I'll never measure up, I'll never be good enough because those people told me that. And we, we take monopoly money to the bank as if it has authority. And here God is saying, I love you. My faith shines upon you. And, and I, I'm, I, I see you. I'm with you. I love this picture of God that we have right in the thick of the Old Testament. One more image that I want to give you. And then we're going we're gonna to land the plane with something really practical stuff. Um, Ephesians 5, 31 to 32, there's a, a passage about marriage, and this is in your devotional. I say there's, there's a diversity of ways people are interpreting this passage today, how to apply it to today. I don't want you to get distracted by that. I want you to look at what Paul's point was. He's using human marriage as a metaphor for Jesus' relationship with us, the church. And he says, quoting Genesis 2, 24, about sex, about marriage, he says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about sex within marriage. But then he says, this is a profound mystery. I'm talking about Christ and the church. And if you go to Revelation 21, we see eternity. We see the new heaven and the new earth come down, and the picture is of a bride and a bridegroom. Jesus is the groom. We, the church, are the bride. So I just want to state that the gospel is, is it's much more than an acknowledgement that your sins are forgiven. We often say the gospel is that you believe your sins are forgiven. That's part of the gospel. But the gospel is a living, breathing longing that God has for you. God is longing for you. God desires you in a way that no spouse can ever long for you or desire you. In a way that no boyfriend or girlfriend could ever long for you or desire you, God desires you in that way. 
It's a beautiful picture of intimacy that we have. So this is a, a prayer that I want to challenge you with. And this, is a, this is a really challenging prayer to pray, but I want you to sit with it. And again, I don't know all of your stories, but we, have, we all have a story. And I want you to think about praying this prayer. But I call it a prayer because I want this to be true of me. I want this to be true of you. you don't have, it doesn't have to be true of you to pray it. We're praying that it would be true of us. Jesus, I want you more than I want men or more than I want women. Jesus, I want you more than I want sex. Jesus, I want you more than I want marriage. Jesus, I want you more than a fill-in-the-blank husband or wife. Whatever attribute for those that are currently married or, or if you're single and thinking about a spouse, if, if there's this thing you need your husband or wife to change in, if they would just change in this one way, then all your problems would be solved. Put that in the blank and then say, Jesus, I want you more than that. Jesus, I want you more than anything. And Jesus, I have you. I already have you. Can you imagine the peace and the wholeness we would have if we walked around with this truth filling us up? I want you to meditate on that last line. I want you to think about what you already have in Jesus, the love and the wholeness that you already have in him, and allow it to spring up gratitude in you. Allow gratitude to come forth, contentment to come forth. It's not easy to be content in your singleness. It's not easy to be content in your marriage. It's not easy to be content if you're divorced. This is the path of contentment for all of us. The Thanksgiving feast. Write these things down. <laughs> Here are four quick ways of keeping a full stomach. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. We're going to actually do that in a moment with communion. Eating, Jesus eating actual bread into our stomachs. Be reminded from God that he loves you in this way. Do daily devotions. We have them in the app for you to do. Pray, take a Sabbath, take retreats. When we take communion, this is a way of being reminded from God that he loves you in a way that makes you whole. Number two, be reminded from others. This has to be embodied. I can't just read it in my Bible. I have to experience it from others in community. So come to church. Thank you for being at church. <laughs> for those of you watching online, we're thankful for you. But come to church. I'm looking at the camera. Come to church. Come to church. Be with people. Be with people. We have to embody this to one another. What I mean by embody is I have to embody to Dennis. Dennis, God loves you. You are his son, and he loves you so much. He's so well-pleased with you. And then in return, Dennis embodies to me, Noah, God loves you, and he's so well-pleased with you. And you are his son. You're his beloved son. We have to hear that from each other. When you come forward for communion, when you come forward for prayer and our prayer invitation, these are the things we remind each other of. It's why we have small groups. And once you're in a small group and you build friendships, go deeper in those friendships. Call someone up for coffee. Talk about your vulnerable self. Talk about your temptations. Ask someone to keep you accountable. Ask someone to pray for you. What Satan wants, he wants you to hole up alone. He wants you to be alone when you're in the height of your pain. He wants you to handle it by yourself. We need others. We need the testimony of others around us. I'd encourage you to come every Sunday you can. 
Come to small group. Come to summer lights. We'll talk about that in number four. Number three, remind yourself. Figure out ways throughout the day to remind yourself of this truth. There's something called a breath prayer. It's just a short, you, can, you figure out what it is for you. But I like to just remind myself, I am God's son, and he loves me, and he's well pleased with me. And remind myself of that all throughout the day. Memorize scripture, journal, put sticky notes all over your, your life, reminding you of these truths. And then number four, remind others. When you come to Summer Lights as a volunteer, you remind others that God loves them in this way. When you volunteer in the kids' ministry, you're reminding others that God loves them in this way. When you disciple someone, you're reminding others that God loves them in this way. This is my last slide. If you could do me a favor, I, would, uh, I, I mean this. Um, everyone, if you could pull your phones out. I'm not, I'm not trying to get you to buy anything. Uh, I want like, everyone to take a picture of this screen, please, because uh, um, nobody's going to get this information uh, unless I have everybody do it to make it normal. So if everyone could normalize this for me, thank you. Um, there's some groups I'd encourage you to check out um, that deal with accountability and community specifically on our sexual brokenness. Uh, you're not going to find this in your Mosaic small group. It's not what those groups are designed for. Um, but there's groups for women at sherecovery.com. Look for the membership tab. And there's groups for men that I lead at beyondthebattle.net with guys all over the country. I would love for some guys here in our own church uh, to jump into those groups as well. There's also software you can use. I use both of these that can help keep you away from pornography and keep your children away from pornography. And that information is on uh, the screen as well. Um, this wraps up our, our series. And um, I just, uh, yeah, worship team, you guys can come back up and we're gonna, we're gonna move into a time of communion. I, I hope that what this series did, and particularly this sermon today, is that it, I hope that you heard God's invitation to you. I, heard, I hope that you heard his invitation of love for you, and he's inviting you into a relationship with him. You might say, I already have a relationship with him. He's inviting you into a deep, intimate relationship with him where you know who you are as his child. You know that he makes you whole, and when you are already full on him, if and when marriage comes your way, that's a beautiful gift and you can give a whole self to somebody else. But you don't need to have that romantic person in your life to make you whole, because you're already whole. And that will do wonders when it comes to healing our sexual brokenness and satisfying the craving that we have for the next and the next and the next, because we already know that we have it in Jesus. Pray with me, and then uh, we're gonna take communion together and continue in worship. Lord, thank you for today. Um, this is such a, a big subject. God, honestly, I feel like Satan wants us to um, <laughs> Satan wants us to act like we don't struggle with this. Like, who is this preacher talking to? Uh, nobody struggles with this stuff. Meanwhile, it is the number one thing that I think most of us struggle with. And praise you, God, for those that don't. Um, but maybe we be a community where the sexually broken can find you, Jesus, can find wholeness in you, and, and we are all broken. We all have these wounds, and I just pray that even in these next few moments we have together, these next few minutes that we have together, God, that you would draw us to yourself and speak to us with your love, and you would draw us into a journey, just like the woman in Mark 5, that we would meet you, Jesus, and then be ushered into a community 
a healthy community that reminds us of your love and that we are loved in a way that we could never find anywhere else, but that we would find that love here at Mosaic Church and we'd find that love in our Christian community and in our friendships, Lord. I pray for individuals that are really struggling right now, for those that are single, those that are divorced, those that are married, those that are separated from spouses. God, there's just incredible weight and pain. And I pray, Jesus, that you would meet us in our pain and for those experiencing pain, that they would come to you, that they would not run away from you. It's easy to run away from you in our pain. And I pray that they would see your compassionate arms and they would run to you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Amen.